Hi, everybody. I'm Peter Travers, and welcome to Popcorn, where we tell you what's happening at the movies. And there's a movie now that, if you haven't seen already, you need to see now, and it's called Can You Ever Forgive Me? It stars Melissa McCarthy and my guest today, Richard E. Grant. Richard, welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. With a title like uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? I Just Want to Confess All My Sins to You and say, please, give me absolution. (laughs) I give you (laughs) absolution, my son. It's all okay. What's amazing about that title is that it is, there's always the risk that it's a gift to critics to annihilate it because it says, can you ever forgive me? And, you know, if you hated the movie, it would be, I know, I will never forgive you. I never will, right. Yeah. We in the critic world always tried to avoid the gifts that were given that are too easy, you know. And luckily for you, this movie's really, really good. Yeah. So it feels good when that happens, right? It does. And it's always a surprise because... I think it's, it's maybe like going, the equivalent of going dating where you begin a movie with the best intentions and you hope that it's going to work out and then, you know, very often happens that it doesn't work out. So the fact that this one has, you know, this little 28-day shoot in New York last winter mm-hmm. um, has now had all this sort of critical mass behind it is, it's a major relief in contrast to Hudson Hawk, which I was in 150 years that, ago. Right? You go in and you come out of the other end, and the critics are like, "We're gonna eat, eat you alive." <laughs> we and they hate do. you. Yeah, you, we hate you. you Are we gonna tell time. that we hate you? Yeah, you right. stole we our time. This. Time that we can never get back. But that wasn't the case with "Can You Ever Forgive Me." When you read it, you said, "What? I I'll s- never do this. I, I s- will not work with Melissa McCarthy." Yeah. Well, you know, when I first read it, I thought, "Is this going to be?" Because it was a true story, I, I wondered at what level it was going to be pitched as a kind of Melissa McCarthy vehicle mm-hmm. to play a, a more comedic, mm-hmm. you know, according to the persona that we've, we've become used to seeing her in. Um, so, so reading that this was a true story and that the entire center of gravity of this character, if you like, was, and her voice was deeper, everything was kind of grounded. So I thought... I was very curious to see when, when I accepted to do the part um, at what level she was going to do this and she left any vestige of vanity or that comic persona that we know and love so much at the door and she completely invested herself in Lee Israel to a remarkable extent I thought I think her it's transformative what she's done. But I mean, I should say, you know, in, in introducing it, that Melissa McCarthy's playing Lee Israel, who, you know, did write a series of biographies mm-hmm. and then falling on hard times, as writers will do, to, to basically forging these letters from famous writers and selling them. Yeah. You know? And then she brings you into the fold. Who are you? Who is this guy you're playing? This guy was a, basically a kleptomaniac a uh, petty drug dealing old charmer who so typecasting yeah gathered yeah. his way around Greenwich Village in the early 90s he's HIV positive he was from Portland in Oregon I said to Mary Hella, the director on the when I first had email exchange with her I said am I playing what so where did he come from and she said I want you not to play him as an American and I said but it's a real person she said yeah but nobody we can find nobody that knew him um, all his friends had died of AIDS, so, and I think his family had disowned him. So um, you play him as with your own accent. So there was no argument about that. 
So I was disappointed because I thought it was my chance to do an American accent I'm again. doing my American accent. <coughs> exactly, but uh, they didn't want that. So that is as much as I knew, and that he died in 1994, and that had been this great accomplice to her, that once she had been rumbled by the FBI for forging all these letters, she then needed the remaining letters that she had to be fenced so that she could carry on earning money. So she used Jack Hawk, who's the character that I play, to go and do this. And I know from her memoir that he obviously had a real talent for schmoozing people because she would expect him to come back with four or five hundred dollars for a letter and he'd come back with two grand. So I knew that he had some way of just going in there and you know, fan dancing to fleece people of their money like Fagin. So I thought, well, that's, that was a clue to what he does. Well, you know, Richard, that in, in doing this and uh, the, when the movie opened, there's yeah. all this Oscar buzz about mm-hmm. you and Melissa. Mm-hmm. How does that affect you? Peter, hand on heart, I have never, I'm, I'm essentially what, you know, on Google refers to as a veteran journeyman actor in that I've been <laughs> around for so long. And I've never been, apart from being in the ensemble cast for Gosford Park, you know, 20 years ago that got the SAG award for that, I'm not somebody that has a career that's been littered with nominations and awards. So although I've been an avid watcher of all these award shows ever since I could breathe, um, now that I hear this stuff, it genuinely feels like it's, it's about somebody else. Do I understand why it is for Melissa? It can't be Melissa? me. Yeah. So the, I think it's, it's partly to do with this, this thing that I've noticed in many actors of having large ego on the one hand and low self-esteem on the other, which sounds like a contradiction in terms because it's like going, give me the job over Peter. But then the moment you've got the job, you think, I'm not worthy. It should, be, it should have been Peter. Yeah. So that's... Then you get rid of the should have been Peter part. Yeah, but you I, you know, I don't go. mean to be disingenuous about that, but it's a genuine... You know, I, I, that's, that's genuinely what it feels like. So the fact that this is happening now at my you know, advanced age... <laughs> is a complete surprise to me. It genuinely is. I, I, I have no, nothing to compare it to. So have you now prepared a speech and that everybody's already saying this is in the bag? You want to try it out? Of course not. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, not at all. I thank all the little people that helped me get here along the way. <laughs> yes. I think... There's something I want to ask you about because it could be uh, apocrypha. I don't know about this, but mm-hmm. first time I saw you in anything was Whitney and I. Uh-huh. So that's like what thirty. Thirty-two years ago. You play Whitney, who's a total drunk, mm-hmm. and now you're drinking tremendously in this, and yet you have what an allergic reaction to alcohol? Yeah, I have no enzyme in my <laughs> blood system to process alcohol, so I can keep nine minutes is the longest I've ever managed to keep any down my throat without it coming out as a Persian carpet very, very fast. <laughs> wow. So, so there's no real research into these parts for you where you could do this. No, no. Observation. You know, there's that thing where, you know, where you, do you get, do you, do you drink? Yes, I can have it without projectile vomiting. Okay. Well, you, you know? know that moment that, that somebody who's had, had a lot to drink, there's an enormous concentration on focus of, just trying to get through that door and that in itself seems to me the clue to how to do it. Yeah. What do Dude, I know? It's acting. 
It's acting. It's Thank acting. You, you had acting. no idea. Yeah. But when you come in, when you're doing Whitman, they say, well, you, you got to be this total drunk. You say, I can do that. Or do you just tell them the truth? I did tell the director the truth, and him being a sadist, Bruce Robinson, who wrote and directed that and gave me my you know, film career, um, he insisted, and he came up with this pretentious phrase of saying, you have to have a chemical memory, Peter, of what it's like to be absolutely lathered. So he sent me home with a bottle of champagne and said, you drink this in between the vomiting all night and then come into work the next day for final rehearsals. So I did that. And, uh, I was drunk, so I have experienced what it is to be drunk, but that was very painful, and I've, I passed out from it. <laughs> yeah. It's, t it's too hot. There's too much <laughs> suffering involved too in your suffering. success story. <laughs> and now it's bookended exactly. uh, by all this, with Hudson Hawk somehow in the middle of yeah. all of these other things. I wasn't things. drunk in that one. You know, and somebody who's followed the things that you've done, especially when you write about your experiences of doing this. Whitnail was what? The Withnail? The diary of the Yeah, making. they're called Withnails. With and it, was, it started from the first one that I made, which you've just talked about in 1986, and then I went through to working in Hollywood and, you know, then Indies. So it was a sort of A to Z of somebody who's never done a movie who then ends up in Los Angeles and just the trajectory of, of that. And you're not, you know, bitter and destroyed. You know, I would have taken up drinking despite the vomiting, given what you went to, especially. I want to bring up Wawa, which you did do the Wawa Diaries about. Mm -hmm. But this is you. You're doing a movie. You're directing and writing about your life. Uh -huh. And your life is so unbelievable <laughs> that even if that's another movie you put on your list, you go and see that and you'll see Gabriel Byrne play your dad. Mm -hmm. and. But can you talk a little about, about where you grew up and you know where this person I'm looking at now comes from? Okay, I gr I'll try and make this really short. I grew up in no, a I country called Swaziland, which is the smallest country in the Southern Hemisphere. And it was a British protectorate in the last gasp of the British Empire in the late 60s. And my father was the uh, head of education, which is why I went to school there. And he, when I was 11 years old, I woke up on the back seat of a car and saw my mother shagging mm -hmm. my father's best friend on the front seat, which is what you're not supposed to see when you're a child. I don't know whether or you've had this experience. ever. Exactly. Either. Right. So that began my diary keeping because I couldn't tell anybody. I tried God. I'd got no answer. I couldn't tell my friends. I certainly couldn't tell my parents. So a diary was a way of keeping it, somehow made it real because I thought, well, Somebody has borne witness to it, even if it's myself. And so as a result, I've become a diarist ever since. Once my mother had left, my father descended into very violent um, alcoholism by night and Mr. Charm by day. And it culminated when I was 15 years old. I emptied a crate of scotch down a sink at midnight trying to, as a way of trying to stop him drinking. And he had a gun and he tried to shoot me, but he was so drunk that he missed, even though the gun was literally at my forehead. And at the very moment he pulled the trigger, it did that, So, which is why I'm here to tell the tale. How many decades of therapy have you been through? I had a nervous breakdown when I was 42 years old. Mm -hmm. I was surprised you waited that long. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it took, <laughs> took time to build up. And then I had 18 months of psychoanalysis, psycho, psychoanalysis, yes with an absolutely brilliant man called Christopher Bolas, who is from California, um, but worked in London. And uh, he, he fixed my head so that I understood what had happened. And once you have an understanding of something, which I think is exactly what happens in 
you know, the screenplay of Can You Ever Forgive Me, that when you understand why people do what they do, then compassion and forgiveness flood in. And that's exactly what happened to me. And so I, I had, after an estrangement of 30 years with my mother, the adulteress, <laughs> uh, we had a rapprochement, so for which I'm very, very grateful, which is why I'm now so sane and healthy, talking to you, <laughs> as opposed to being a gibbering wreck. <laughs> You know, but Richard, there's so many stories about you that I've heard, and to have you here to ask about them is, is kind of great. There was another story about your acute sense of smell. Yes. Where does this come from? Were you born with this? I never understand why people don't smell everything, because you see animals, which I grew up around, they smell everything. Um, so to not smell something is how I've understood the world. So I literally have been led by my nose all my life, which is on the back of my perfume range that I created four years ago. But what happened was that when I was 12 years old in 1969, I had a huge crush on an American girl called Betsy Clapp, oh. who arrived in Swartown. I'd never met an American before. <laughs> you know, Neil Armstrong had landed on the moon. So everything American was the most exotic, glamorous thing possible to me. Um, so I tried to make perfume out of gardenia and rose petals boiled up in sugar water and sealed in jam jars, which of course, you know, turned into stink bombs. So it took <laughs> really me another, another four decades to do it professionally. What so did Betsy think of your gift? I have no, oh, she, I, did, I didn't dare give it to her because it was so oh, bad. I see, it was just so too bad. So she never got it. And then she left Swaziland after a year, so I've never seen sight nor sound of her since, so I have no idea what's happened to her. Betsy, wherever you are, please write in. Please let us know what's going Thank on. You. I owe you my perfume business. Does your acute sense of smell sometimes really bother you? Because, yeah. yeah, because I can't, I don't eat any dairy and chocolate. I find chocolate and cheese the most repellent smell of anything. So I'll leave a room if people are eating them. Um, so if I have dinner with friends or whatever and the cheese course comes out, I'm out the door for a, you know, a good break till the stench <laughs> is done. Um, oh yeah, so that's just genetic. I have to bring this up. You're now in the new Star Wars movie. What is, where did this career come from? It's just all over the map. You're not drunk in it, I'm, I'm hoping. As far as I know, I'm not drunk, drunk in, in it. Because I think people do get drunk in outer space or in the, you know, the realm, the, the, whatever, you know, the byline is. So, no, I'm not drunk in this one as far as I know. <laughs> As far as you know, they and, could have CGI'd you and but, just made you drunk. But what is extraordinary about it is that I saw the first one when I was a drama student in 1977 when I was 20 years old. So if you had told me that, you know, four decades and a year later, I would be in one of them in the ninth and final Skywalker you know, saga, I would have said you need mental health help <laughs> because it would seem so beyond the realm of any possibility at all. Did you meet Chewbacca? Because I know you can't tell anything about what... Who? Oh, okay. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> I was just going to ask how Chewbacca smelled, but that was all. Um, I honestly can't tell you. Tell you. I would love to tell you. How do they punish you when you give something away? What did they do? Uh, you would Is get it, fired. You would get fired? I was, told, I was told on the first day <laughs> that... When J.J. Abrams said to you, you're yeah. fired. Please, I don't ever want to hear those <laughs> words in the same sentence. Every time I go to work now, he just pinches me on the shoulder and he says, right, you're here. Just so that I know that I'm actually in this universe that he's, <laughs> he's cast me in. Um, because it is so completely unreal. 
So all I, all I do know is that they said, if you're ever asked about anything at all, the 19th of December, 2019, is when it's released. And I've just shared that with you, Peter. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that. Well, this is your first time on this show, so you don't know really that we end in song. Okay. So you couldn't prepare anything, which makes me happy. Okay. So I want the song that's in your heart, Richard E. Grant. So what's the song in your heart? Nobody cares what the song in my heart is. I do. Even though I'd sing it with you if I knew the song you were doing. Well, what, what song is in your heart? Oh, I can't. I'm trying to then da 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 da. There you go. You should come and lock him up, please. <laughs> please, yeah, it's time. But I want the one in yours. I've done everything you've asked now. All I'm of even me. Talking Why like not you. take I, all of me? All of me. Yeah. Yeah. That was as much as I'm getting. Isn't that a good one? Yeah. Well, if you sing at the Oscars, I'll be very angry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I wanted all to hear. All of me. <laughs> Why not take all of me? Now I'm happy. Can't you see? I'm no good without you. Now I can't stop him. <laughs> that was it. Richard, thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs>